Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Emil Amos, a musician who plays in Grails, makes music as Holy Sons, is the drummer for Ohm, and he also has a project with Alex Hall from Grails called Lilacs of Champagne. He's also got a podcast called Drifter's Sympathy, which I've been discovering and devouring recently. Um, if there's a consistent thread with email, at least from my ears, it's this idea of assimilation. He has this wonderful way of binding together cultural artefact, meaning, philosophy, zeitgeist of particular times in history. It's almost like all of these things are recast as jigsaw pieces and he's got this keen eye for knowing how they all slot together. The podcast was put in my direction by Lauren Barley uh, from Rally Unable PR. She said, Emil's got a podcast. She knew that I was already into his music. She was like, you need to listen to Drifter's Sympathy. And I've gone through the whole thing. At the time that I spoke to Emil in this interview, I think I was only eight episodes in, but in the meantime, I think I've gone through the other 32 in the space of about, I don't know, three, four weeks. Difficult to say what it's about. I think the description says that it's about the archetype of the outsider. And this is explored through stories of Emil's growing up, his emergence into adolescence, and the ossification of his own personal philosophies, but also episodes which feature mixes of music that Emil has compiled, of people that have sort of slipped off the edge of our consciousness. They're just kind of lost to time, so prominent makers of library music, uh, experimental musicians working in the UK off the back of the Beatles boom. There's so much to devour here, and it's a podcast that I think accumulates purpose and intention and significance as you listen through. Definitely one that you need to go through from the beginning onwards. And this was a really excellent chat. Anyone who's listened to Drift of Sympathy will know the conviction with which Emil presents himself, and it was so wonderful to be a conversational participant in that on this occasion. So if you want to check out more of Emil's music and everything else he's doing besides, then head over to holysons.com or holysons.bandcamp.com as well. And obviously I'll have all the links to Emil's picks on adcentralmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. One final thing, Emil kindly composed a, basically a soundtrack to this episode that I've laid underneath. People who listen to Drift to Sympathy will know that there's usually this mysterious spooky music going on underneath at all times. It's almost like Emil's signature aroma. So that's wafted its way into this podcast episode as well. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Hello, Emil. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, good to be here. So before we get into your three important records, I want to ask a couple of questions about your other projects. The first of which being Drifter's Sympathy, your podcast. As we were just saying before we hit record, it's a podcast that I've just got into in the last few weeks. So I'm still in the realms of 2016 and those episodes, but obviously (laughs) you're still recording it now. There's been so much that's happened since with that podcast. Um, What was your, this question's a bit of a two-part, but what was your original intention with the podcast? And then as a second part of that, has that intention changed as you've been working on the podcast over the past three years um the way it started out was duncan my friend have you ever heard of this duncan trussell character yes i have okay he you know we went to college together in the 90s and he was in the it department he worked in the computer lab at the school and i worked in the hvac department and he often knew about all the new cutting edge technology just he was just up on everything and i was probably a kind of luddite back then and he was showing me the first cd burners and we were basically making my first records he was helping me burn those almost as like school projects because my grades were so low i was trying to get some better grades going and As the years went on and he went to L.A. and got into comedy and I went to Portland, Oregon and got into music, he just kind of, I guess in the background, had his eye on sort of what became the podcasting phenomena and he was on the ground floor. And I I think you could arguably say he was one of the the first kind of cult little phenomena besides Mark Maron and helped pioneer what... A podcast could be in some ways and because I'd be passing through LA on tour I guess I just ended up on the podcast all the time and was you know maybe his most frequented guest and over the years it was super fun but it was mostly how I reconnected with my old friend and it wasn't any sort of agenda on my end and at some point, people started saying, you should have your own podcast. And I mean, I really, it's not that I looked down upon their suggestion, but I didn't consider it at all and thought it was a silly idea. <laughs> and then as, as things go, I guess in my life is like, once I finally come upon an idea that um, I can't shake or like I'm up at night and I, and I kind of happen upon a concept for a record or a band or something. And I, I really get involved and invested. Then it becomes really real to me. And once I could kind of decentralize myself from being a host conceptually and sort of tell a story or make an art project, then I got really excited about it because the idea of being a host or having to do that kind of work sounded really unnatural to me and I had to make it into something I thought could be very open-ended and go into just deeper realms of speculation I guess and and also celebrate other people pointedly I thought that would free me up and make me more comfortable and 
it wasn't something that I felt I had to do is part of what I'm saying. And in the, in the world mm. of <clears throat> music and business and actors and LA where the network is and, and a lot of the other podcasters, you know, comics, there was a phase the last few years, I guess it's still going on where comics think or their management tells them they have to have a podcast right. because it's just <laughs> such a intrinsic form of self-promotion. And this just had to be something completely different than that. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't obligated to promote myself through it. And I, and I really try to shy away from talking about my own music or playing it usually. Um, but in the end, I was just compelled by the idea that it could be this really special format for a different kind of story. And I guess, I mean, I've got to answer the second part. I got more excited about it as the podcast itself just became deeper for me and and serve more purposes for me selfishly um i think it it has the potential to help other people who i get a lot of messages from people who are like just getting out of heroin addiction or you know at their father's deathbed in the hospital i mean all sorts of things and and i know that being honest is in this particular respect is um is something that can redeem other people's feelings because it's happened to me so i kind of know what other people have done for for me and it's funny because a lot of the people that i was inspired by uh it's almost like they abandoned that mission and almost don't understand what they were up to so in a strange way i feel like i have to carry the torch for a lot of the different subjects I'm I'm getting into, I feel like I have to reveal them like in a very pure, non-judgmental, judgmental like atmosphere, so people can just hear a story with no moral uh, spin on it, and just have to deal with what life really is. I mean, I think you speak to that what feels like a real contemplative intensity that I hear when I listen to the, the podcast in these early stages. Um, What's the kind of setup that you have when you're recording these shows? I mean, at the moment, in, in my own listening early on, you, you kind of have two different types where you have uh, storytelling episodes and then you have another which is a musical exploration around a, a partic particular theme. What do these recording sessions look like? I mean, are you... Uh, doing in anything in terms of your environment or the or the way that you're putting everything together in order to generate a headspace which feels conducive to the sort of objective that you want to put forward with the podcast mm, that's slightly complicated because i know that you're you've only listened to like eight episodes you said yeah yeah Okay, so you, you're, you're like in a different lifetime of, uh, than I am right now because that was, that was still when I was trying to conceptualize the thing. And I assume if you scroll back to any to the beginning of any podcast, you probably need to prepare yourself if it's been running for ten years or something, you know, for for someone to be figuring their shit out as they're going, you know. Yeah. 
Um, but at the very, very beginning, maybe it was more of a lark. I thought maybe we'd do like one season. And I had met this kid, Jonah, who had recently been signed to temporary residence. And I'd been on temporary residence for at least a decade or something. And, um, there was something about him. He just, uh, he was an incredible listener, but he was like, he was this perfect balance of curious and a new friend. I didn't know him at all, really. And uh, I found him pretty fascinating. His older sister was on Siren Live at the time, and I was watching her all the time. And uh, he was pretty close with Anna, who, who works at Temporary Residence. And we all just sort of had been throwing ideas around. And somehow, maybe he just sort of gently coerced me into starting the podcast and said I could come into Converse in Williamsburg, like in the belly of the beast, um, where we could record for free and they'll give you shoes and they give you like free recording days there with their fancy engineers and their fancy setup. And it's like free coffee and, you know, celebrities just kind of like wandering around (laughs) and, it seemed funny, you know, like this is the opposite of what I want <laughs> to do in theory. This, but like, you know, using that kind of opportunity, using that kind of money is like what an artist always has to be very aware of, of doing, you know, and, and jumping and into these situations that might even be uncomfortable and bringing the real fucking goods, you know, bringing mm-hmm. what sort of what I used to see as a kid in the underground that I don't really see much of anymore, which was just like extreme raw behavior without it being, um, sort of reconfigured for digestion. You know, there are still a couple people around like the guys from Wolf Eyes or something that remember and understand that stance, you know, they were also mm-hmm. skateboarders and they, they had a lot of things in common with kids like me. And there's still a few people left from that time. That's pre-internet and pre social promotion, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, everybody else now, I, it, it's hard to see if they know the difference between just behaving and then behaving for rewards, you know, like it's like it's way too complicated for them to separate, I think. And I felt like, you know what, I can I can display something through this forum, I just like I feel like I do in music. But music is complicated because people don't like certain styles. They only identify with certain lifestyles. They can pick and choose between anything and rationalize it any way they want. But maybe if I'm fucking talking like a just raw, you know, words on a page, like maybe they can't ignore it. You know, maybe maybe it's something they might have to deal with. So it just seemed like too perverse of an opportunity not to try. You mentioned there about the pressure that you've seen emerge in terms of like, to perform for reward for some form of validation. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something that, as it has perhaps become more commonplace, I mean, is that something you feel completely separate from as it's sort of become a a figment of culture? Do you, do you feel any inclination or any pull towards that kind of behavior at all? Well, I think that there's a level 
to making music that is business oriented and I think when it's timed for me to make decisions that concern business I think I'm I'm really good at that but mm. that's a separate part of the brain and it's a separate paradigm in life interaction it's not the same place that art comes from and mm-hmm. You know, there's, I'm, I'm lucky in some ways and, and wildly unlucky in others, but like one way I'm lucky is that I've been alone for so long and I've operated alone for so long that my, my method is uncorruptible. So I exist on my own moon, you know, outside of the industry and I always have, and I always will. And I've never, no one ever discovered me. You know what I mean? Like I've completely dodged the entire world of, of the industry and basic promotional tactics. I mean, all I have to do is just tell people that I made a new episode and that's it. You know, I don't really (laughs) have to do anything. I don't have to make appearances and I don't have to apologize for my behavior in the, in the, podcast like i'm i'm small enough i'm under the radar enough that i'm allowed to be myself and i'm very in touch with that because i grew up as a home recorder and a home recorder's job is to purely capture themselves without interrupting your own behavior so you can study behavior itself so you can't you don't want to narrate yourself your own behavior you just want to see what it is and you use the four track like a mirror and it and it helps you grow and see yourself and and songs can do an amazing reflexive um job of 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 showing you yourself which is weird to think that everybody doesn't have something like that because the challenge is inherent to to basically making these kinds of mirror recordings are what helps you grow as a, as a kid that's home recording. And and so my entire sense of self comes from this, putting it under the microscope and, and not having, you know, any aspiration of what I'm supposed to be, but just studying this thing that I see almost as another entity and not judging it and letting it be what it needs to be and and wondering what that thing is so i think that that tradition of examination and self-evolution and almost amoral introspection is like this thing i'm carrying on and bringing to people without without really any training in the arts of entertainment and all the things that i despised so much and still do about even current bands that just don't seem to see the difference between art and entertainment i'm trying to put a flag down and display something about what art could could have been or still can be you know awesome so another point i wanted to bring up in this introduction is the fact that you are going on tour this summer with ohm and it's been a different experience for me every time that i've seen you and i've seen you i think a couple of times since the most recent record in 2012 and then a few times before that i think i saw the band a couple of times as well when when chris was there as well 
Home has been something that's constantly been changing for me as a listener. Now you're working with material that is all at least seven years prior to you. I mean, is there a changing relationship that you're feeling with the material that you're playing live with Ohm at the moment in 2019? Um, I, it's funny. Uh, that is a complex territory. I've just been recently thinking more about, like, I feel, uh, I feel like each band has a responsibility to represent their classic form live. Hmm. To some degree, I mean, you, you're not going to go see um, some rejigged like Thin Lizzy, and they're and they wouldn't not play uh, the Boys Are Back in Town or something. You know, like <laughs> it, it, it's insanely pretentious to show up and just explore new sounds all the time. So <laughs> I think respecting uh, the classic form of the band, the thing that drew people to it in the first place, is important. And then finding a balance between going new places is not always super easy, I think. Because I have several live bands, each one is always in a different stage of refinding themselves. And with Ohm, I, I mean, I feel like we just haven't wanted to play anything new until it's actually done in terms of making the next record and I think we've perverted and changed some of the older songs and now we have a new member Tyler who was playing in Grails for a while and is also uh, he has a band called Water that they formed with Zach from Grails and, and Britt from Slant and it, there's been so much going on in our lives that we have to reshift and and rediscover the band constantly anyway so it's hard to explain when kids ask me where's a new record you know <laughs> well it's funny because we we don't come from a world where music is really a product so we kind of live the stuff and then it <laughs> may come out and uh it's hard to explain to people exactly where the record is, um, but at the same time, certain bands. This is this is a complicated question, but like certain bands, like live past certain like generations, and new generations come into their fold. Dinosaur Junior is a great example of a band I thought was gone forever, and then we opened for them, and I looked out in the crowd, and it was just kids you know and, and right. that's one of the luckiest things that can happen to a band is that they find new generations and Ohm is still doing that and there's still younger kids kind of coming into the sway of that music so um, yeah I think we're very lucky to be operating at the level we are right now but uh in terms of the song shifting, it, it, the music is just literally a reflection of where we're at. And I mean, Al and I are true, like acid casualty kids, you know, <laughs> that that are still trying to get ourselves together all the time, you know. So we we just like the audience are sort of wondering where it's going to, you know. Yeah. Uh, like I say, I found it fascinating. I think the last time I saw you was a 
few years ago now, but you played at Village Underground in London, and the it was a huge room anyway, but the amount of space within the music was really striking, like the bass was ramped up, the fuzz was kind of rolled back in Al's case, and your drums were really echoing through the space a lot more than they ever have when I've seen you previously. So it's been a, it's been amazing to see from my side just the material stay as a constant and yet just the kind of environment in which you're presenting it be the the variable that just brings new lights to that music. It's really cool. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I hope I'm not like uh for someone listening like spinning off into some sort of pretentious tangent, but there does seem to be a common thread here and it's funny to even hear someone describe what they saw or what they hear because, because I swear to God, um, I think a lot of bands, you know, conceptualize themselves and they're like, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I do that in grails all the time. I want to fill voids that have never existed. And I want to, hybridized things I've never heard before and I, t- I like to talk about it with other guys but um, but in Ohm we don't we don't do that we we just are ourselves and what I think is powerful about that is that you don't even think about like tone or tuning your drums or cymbals or you know where the where the knobs are at you just you just feel out what's happening in the room and you just you just express yourself and i think it's some some kind of lost art in a way that just like i was talking about the podcast just behaving in itself mm-hmm. without reaching in and trying to tweak it so that it is likable in some way is the original kind of true punk impulse that i mean you know the sex pistols were were configured and narrated and and created for sure in ways so what punk uh seed i'm even talking about is very case specific depending on what you heard first or what changed your life you know if it was some sort of acid folk or the germs or you know something that was lawless something that you experienced that was outside of known categories or or things that were designed for you to like i think that it's just such a rare a rare breed that still wants to find the things that were not configured for you for your digestion you know well we should go to your uh, important records now email um first question i like to ask is and i think this is something from our email exchange that I I think you did contemplate how to go but how did you think about the term important when you were picking your list like what was the kind of slant or or the way that you sliced that term in order to come up with the three albums that you did well again I guess I just I didn't want to think about it I, I looked around my room and I nothing was jumping out at me you know i i think when you run a podcast you at least should hold yourself to a pretty high degree of discerning um taste if you're gonna be if you're gonna like vouch for things for other people to listen to i just i guess i kind of resent the fact that there's a lot of people out there i mean 
thousands and thousands and thousands of podcasts that just it's like they um, they came up with the half-baked concept in a bar and they just hit record and they're like 300 episodes deep and they still don't know what the fuck they're talking <laughs> about you know yeah and uh i just it I, that hurts me because noise pollution is one of the worst pollutions, you know, <laughs> and like just people's mind pollution too is one of the most corrosive, sad pollutions, you know. And uh, when I looked around at my record bins, I just I don't want to waste anyone's time. I'm just I'm obsessed with not wasting their time and. Um, so I thought it was like it'd be smarter to just do classic classic records that um can't be torn down from their particular, you know, mantle places. It just feels like there's so many hundreds of records I've got sitting here. I can put them on the podcast, but you're asking me to talk about three records like I'm not going to just pull out like something i don't have like a deep connection to you know it just it seems like i'm not interested in people thinking i'm clever either i just don't i i have other ways of doing that in my life (laughs) my ego is fulfilled in other ways i don't need people to think well that was really the smartest choice wow you know I, i just don't care but more than that, I also feel a service to turn people's brains back to something that they miss every day. And the avant-garde and the indie rock industry and all that, that it's just full of so much garbage. And, and it's like it takes an adult to walk in a room and say... I don't need this, 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 none of this. You know, I don't, I don't fucking need it in my life. And let's turn back to fucking Joni Mitchell. And why? Because no one exists like that now. And we don't know why, but it's, it's like such a mercurial, uh, mystery that, that we had these things, you know, that Neil Young wrote Harvest when he was 26. I mean, the mind just spins on that like forever and ever <laughs> like the fact like Ian McKay said this great thing about um, how he still studies the Beatles for hours on end to this day in in private just as kind of a like a religious uh, practice I think that's so beautiful that there's things that you're still spinning around in your head still trying to figure out that are so they're so beautiful they they, they're so beguiling you still haven't unlocked their particular charm and and you almost don't want to you know you don't want to over listen to something that's so it's so itself you know it doesn't it doesn't need to be pushed upon you and it just drifts like driftwood in our culture and just never fucking sinks because it has an innate uh communicative quality to it that cannot be sunken cannot be forgotten you know well let's pick up that first bit of driftwood what album do you want to talk about first (laughs) um well the Joni mitchell one was is court and spark it's not 
it's not something I even want to talk about. It's like it's something that I can't ignore. And that's <laughs> one of the most gnarly things the label had ever said to me is like you really need to make something that the music press can't ignore because hmm. they uh, they can just ignore you at this point. Yes. <laughs> and I thought that was one of the most just, I don't know, incisive, perfect things to say to someone. It's also the most impossible mountain to surmount, you know? Yeah. To make something that people can't ignore can is I like... Can I ask a question on that? Because yeah, how does that... Uh, as something that is worth striving for as someone who's who's making music to make something that people can't ignore, how does that intersect or, or kind of like dialogue with also wanting to just examine your own behavior without responding to, say, like a, an outer validation? Is, is there a way that both of those can coexist as well? Well... I think maybe we both wanted to know that, you know, this was a label <laughs> head telling me, <laughs> telling me to try my best to see if I could make a great record, you know, a dark side of the moon. And, and I, you know, maybe had no interest at first and then thought, well, he's challenging me to do this and he's giving me the money. This is, I'm talking about the Holy Son's record in the garden and, mm. it, and it was the only record I've ever worked with like an outside producer on which was john and yellow from that does all the dinosaur junior records and he, the label head just i i appreciate that kind of well criticism really I, I i've always wanted to know what people really think you know i don't have interest in their mythologies i would like to actually know their, if they really think you're not good at guitar or something you know like i want to know that's part of the reflexive mirror quality of the four track is like you ought to know that you are not good it's showing you you know and you you see what you can get better at and that that life um sort of relationship is that building that dialectic between yourself is just growth in itself that is what growth is so to not want to grow makes no sense to me and he was offering me sort of a step he was he was challenging me and i thought there was no way not to do that but your question what you're doing you're you're illuminating the the dialectic you know between the artist and the businessman and their different pursuits and you're asking how do they come together and the question is no one's ever figured that out you know <laughs> if if the eagles greatest hits is one of the highest selling records of all time you know joni mitchell court and spark is her highest selling record thriller for michael jackson or whatever you know we re-script and we uh, re-narrate these things so that these are artistic high points, you know, on a on the ascent towards God or something. But the truth is, they just sold really well, and no one knows exactly why. You yeah, know? no one knows why they met with culture in the way they did, and sometimes they didn't deserve to in the way that they did. You know, it's hard to say. You know why Pink Floyd is so big and the Rolling Stones. I mean, it, they, they are bloated 
sad kind of celebrities in a lot of ways. And it does make sense why punk was born right off their shoulders because it it's just it's too much fame for one person. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. there's a, a lot of good books on you know how how much how much money Crosby, Stills, and Nash were making, and Johnny Mitchell, and all these people, and and certainly it corrupted them. And the irony was that they were supposed to be the common man speaking to the common man and ripping down, you know, this Wizard of Oz charade that is show business. And and they were really just a different new kind of beast. Um, and I think that I think that it. It's partially my job on the podcast or, or on my records to like rediscover like the true punk Im- impulse and redefine it for myself. Because we look back now, we know everything, you know, with books and the internet, and, and there's not there's not like some arrival point that is like a, the purest punk expression. I mean, Sonic Youth were clearly extremely aware of what they were doing and their environment and the ascension of the avant-garde and and like i mean their their career is about as enviable as you could possibly have Mm -hmm. and it's because they were aware of business it was because they weren't naive you know and i think there's a way to balance those things that's pretty incredible and i think there's ways to completely lose your your artistic mind and your pathway that we generally see that like 99% of the time we see Beck turn into basically what is the music you hear in Kmart now you know like <laughs> yeah he's unnecessary you know he doesn't fulfill any he doesn't give us any sort of beautiful picture of what it means to be a human anymore he's just kind of a shill you know what i mean that's that's the most common ending point you know rush you know does some insane 2112 expression nobody's ever heard this and then eventually they just move towards time stand still or you know whatever that's just the basic current of capitalism you know mm-hmm. so if you can somehow you know Joni Mitchell is like her career is an arc that comes from this kind of organic place it's very debatable how organic that really was or if that was just the most in vogue thing at the time and her career takes this big arc and right when she hits the most commercial point and before she sort of curves back towards something that's slightly less commercial it's a complete coincidence that her most commercial point is also her most artistic. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That's insane. Yeah. How many people can say that? You know, <laughs> that I mean, Blue is is clearly maybe the high point, but then Court and Spark is this extremely refined, idiosyncratic language, and then she kind of doesn't really ever improve upon that. She she sort of stops thinking that big hooks are, like, fascinating to her, and she just kind of shrinks away from her own ambitions, starts smoking too much, loses her voice, you know. But what's fascinating about that is that 
those two things coincided. How could how can you design that? That is an incredible. It's like a super athlete colliding with the perfect team and the perfect time that their body is in its best shape and that is something that te- you know draftsmen like or whatever people that are trying to do the NBA draft right now that's what they're trying to organize they're trying to organize this perfect <laughs> confluence of events and no one has ever been able to do it so when we have evidence like Cordon Spark of somebody arriving at the ultimate nexus point it it just shines for the rest of time as you know like Mozart as one of the greatest moments of humankind you know can you recall the first time that you heard Court and Spark and where you were when it was barely I mean I I had a tape of it and when I first got my driver's license I remember driving to the beach with my high school girlfriend in ninth grade and I guess it no it must have been 10th grade because ninth grade I I don't remember having a girlfriend but um 10th grade <laughs> I was probably leaning closer I was getting out of straight edge hardcore in ninth grade and then 10th grade I'm leaning closer towards Leonard Cohen and my mom had given me this songbook of Leonard Cohen's and uh, she was a huge Joni Mitchell fan, and once I put together that Lou Barlow had covered Joni Mitchell and my sort of Boston hardcore guru loved Joni Mitchell, once I put all that together, I just wanted to experience what she had to say and and her musicology. I wanted to study it as somebody who was always like experimenting and recording at home myself. I just wanted to pick up and steal things from her and learn from her. And uh, Court and Spark is just the most musicologically advanced of her records in terms of her band. And Miles of Isles is sort of my secret favorite. It's like her her live reinterpretation of a lot of her earlier hippie songs. And I would say Miles of Isles is pretty much the high point of that style. It's... It's about as good as a band can get in a lot of ways, Hmm. which is in itself like a pretty fascinating value dissection. But because, I mean, certainly Dave Weckl's band or or like the most fancy, you know, Chick Corea or something could probably outplay them. But my valuation is that you if you listen to Miles of Isles there, there's no reason you should ever have to play better than that in your lifetime <laughs> like there's nothing the Beatles did what they did and they're playing like Suzuki method compared to this so if you're going to take it to this level you know at that point you have to examine your composition skills at that point you have to look at what you have to say to people but I really don't think you can play much better than this within the, the format of pop music you know hmm. you uh you mentioned that you wanted to take this music home and then find means of learning from it. I mean, are there any tangible lessons or directions you took from Joni's music, or is it something that perhaps doesn't lend itself too well to being articulated? Well, I mean, if you're a real songwriter, like a serious motherfucker, you're born songwriter, when you experience any of the greatest songwriters you 
you feel the full weight of their contribution on like your chest. I mean, you have to rise to what this person has done. If you don't feel that challenge, then you should probably go sell lawnmowers or something. You know, like this, this is the one of this woman (laughs) is one of the greatest songwriters of all time for the rest of time from the very beginning of time. Like when you experience just her, her ability to basically outpace everybody else lyrically and rhythmically and melodically. And then with alternate tunings that no one ever heard or used before and incorporating jazz into a format that barely really wanted it (laughs) with the power of Dylan's, you know, implications with what folk and folk rock could be. I mean, you'd have to be a fucking idiot not to understand the weight of what she's putting down. (laughs) And so if somebody tells you they're a songwriter or they're in a band or they're an artist and they're like, Oh yeah, I've never really gotten around to listening to Neil Young. It's like, well then quit your fucking job. Go home right now. What the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, that is not an option. This is like your life's work. This is your life's study. Like this is, this isn't a fucking, you know, lazy Sunday. This is serious, hardcore science. You got to go see what's been done so you can add to the conversation, you know? Yeah. If that helps. <laughs> yeah, that helps. Um, is there a track on Court and Spark that you consider a, a favorite or one that protrudes the most from the record? Mm, the one I've covered the most is called Car on a Hill, and it's just... I don't know why. It it just has it's it's a strange confluence of like Steely Dan um sort of dad lounge jazz players just getting really tricky but basically filling out a very plaintive sad kind of Jackson Brown um, folk song, really. So it, it's it's an interesting nexus point, but the thing that's so fascinating is that she never really does it before this, and she never really does it after it in the same way. And they're at the height of analog technology, and the greatest compressors, and the greatest mics, and the greatest like moment of all of these instruments, and the greatest organic approach to them. So frozen literally like frozen in ice is one of the most beautiful moments of music history in the way people listen to each other and the way they touch the symbols everything about it is a very highbrow way of speaking to another person and you know after that year everything technologically starts to dive into what we now hear in terms of modern music is this kind of plastic piece of shit and i'm not saying that it's all bad or anything i'm just saying this was the last moment you got to experience music sounding exactly like this before everything shifts mindsets shift technology shifts so, you know, if you if you don't know that record and you want to think about writing a song today, producing and arranging a song, I mean, why don't you go spend some time with one of the greatest masters of all time, you know? 
And if you're to spend that time with Court and Spark, I mean, is there a way in which that if you're to listen to a record that means a lot to you and that you want to derive a lot from, do you have some form of optimal listening environment or setup <laughs> that you go to have that practice? It's you know that almost seems like a planned question because the whole reason why I brought up this record was that. Um, I'm like currently living in this bizarre 1982 pimped out trailer. Right. <laughs> and it, what in 1982, what came with the trailers was all these bizarre amenities that at the time would have been like the finest, um, I guess, technological advancements of trailer life. But like each uh, room in this thing has ceiling speakers and they're all linked to a central wall unit stereo which i've outfitted and customized a quadraphonic eight track player in oh my word <laughs> yeah so i have court and spark quadraphonic eight track tapes um i've got i've got all sorts of weird shit like that and i that's you know when i'm making coffee in the morning i have like eight speakers around this house that that are just pumping the shit out but there's no low end it's exactly like someone would have experienced music in the 70s <laughs> and and to me like that kind of quaint it's it's i guess that's kind of like those british shows where they like they go out in the and they like churn butter and they don't have lights and shit like that. You know, the, those kind of antiquated <laughs> sort of return to the pilgrim times. It's like, I totally find that stuff super beautiful because I have this core feeling that technology being better is kind of idiotic and that religious experience comes in the gutter and it comes from outside of what you're supposed to be experiencing so i i love the fact that everything that people discarded with eight tracks and and that world of technology everything that people threw away and is now a dime for me to buy like provides me with so much more happiness than what they get from their super expensive bullshit <laughs> Let's go to your uh, second record email. If you uh, you can pick which other one you please, uh, if you tell me the name of it and then a bit about why it's important to you as well. Oh well, this is pretty easy segue into the best of bread. I wrote bread's greatest hits, but but like, I guess a bread super fan nerd would would know that I'm talking about the best of bread, which is is It's kind of like. In a nutshell, it's everything I just described about the 70s and about um, just a type of attention to rock music production that uh, even if it's been improved upon now or 
we have better equipment. You know, drums are probably scientifically made to pronounce themselves in much better ways. There's everything is been improved upon technically but when you listen to bread you see the high point of the economy of writing a two-minute am radio song and i'm totally aware that most people would not like bread i mean that's just a foregone conclusion it's like (laughs) but to me that's punk you know to me it's like fucking hilarious that people can't wrap their heads around it that it <laughs> repulses them because that's what the germs made people feel like so i feel like i understand i have my own little private punk world where i listen to bread quadraphonic eight tracks in my trailer <laughs> and, and you know that's that's my world of religion that's my god you know and the fact that other people can't access it like makes me laugh. I think it's awesome, you know. <laughs> but um, when I was starting to do Holy Sons live, so this would be twenty years ago or something, I was uh, I was just getting into bread in a really deep way, and and I was living in Portland, Oregon, and the only thing that was like hot at the time was like i don't know if you remember when electro clash came out no nah. nah. it's uh, well like the the hottest band in town was this band called glass candy and i ended up you've probably heard of them um they're like they're like connected to the chromatics and and johnny jewel the guy who did like some of the drive soundtrack and some of the, he's on twin peaks last season and um that kind of like slick impersonal coke vibe you know i'm not saying it's bad it's fucking awesome for what it is when you want that but like i was playing shows with people like that you know when i started holy sons and so i would play i want to make it with you by bread (laughs) live and uh, maybe Baby I'ma Want You or these songs that were just the most literally could not be further from what anyone in those clubs wanted to hear, <laughs> you know. And to me, I was just like, going back to our previous conversation, I was just being myself. I It was funny kind of to me, but I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, what I listened to at home on my 8-track my track player on my like you know twenty dollar shitty stained like flower couch you know when i sat down and that's what made me happy you know so when i came into the club that's i you know i wanted to be myself i didn't want to be some 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 something that other people expected or even really paid for i just wanted them to deal with someone or something you know that that was actually existing in real time and i don't think there's anything wrong with craft and i don't think there's anything wrong with the fact that they were wearing makeup and had like a stage show and a tough vibe and any of that stuff you know it's just it's just not me i just don't care about that stuff and so it just really gave me deep satisfaction to see like avant-garde heads who are supposedly the ones that are supposed to 
uphold like this raw kind of expression you know a real-time expression that's like uncategorizable or unable to be you know conveniently marketed like to see them like getting sick while I'm playing bread you know and, and being like what the fuck are you doing I'm like yeah <laughs> like, I, like I, I see how you actually don't really like music like you don't really hear it you're not here for that you know and that was my insistent way of just pushing through the culture and trying to find my own religious home in it because it's like it's still to this day i am outside of everything you know i never do the right thing at the right time <laughs> and i never fucking win like i always lose and that's my world you know so that's what i i'm comfortable with i get to to exist in my trailer <laughs> pump my my eight tracks and just there's it's it's an adult reality to like see that you kind of won in the end that you you got your pure reality and you didn't have to prostitute yourself and you didn't have to join the crowd you know have you had the flip side to that angry action from anyone if you had anyone that's been like i'm so glad you played that i'm gonna dive deep into bread no no one's ever said that um <laughs> it, it is ironic that you asked me that because um i had a friend in town last week from georgia and he was the original guy that put out this record that i made called decline of the west that is everybody's favorite that likes holy sons which makes me happy um <laughs> But he got into Holy Sons by by Alex from Grails just sending him this record called I Want to Live a Peaceful Life when he asked if we could uh, could maybe give him the first Grails record for a vinyl edition, which Neurot didn't do at that time because it was too expensive back in the day. They just did CDs. And this kid heard holy sons and he said to me the other day that when he heard it he thought holy shit someone out there likes bread sincerely <laughs> like actually likes it and he'd never heard anyone actually step up to the plate and want to play music like that and say like sing like a woman like david gates sings like a woman in if and <laughs> to me you know i grew up singing to my mom's linda ronsdett like eight track tapes in the car i didn't know the difference i just thought that's what singing is and there's something again pre-scripted to that and something just it's like your own talent it just kind of aligns with what it wants to be before you see a marketplace for it so there's something about that uh about that that world that i feel obligated to uphold at all times but it it's effortless for me i don't have to uh this is not like an agenda that i that i've planned or anything but like that the fact that that kid heard bread in my recordings <laughs> it fills me with with kind of like a weird it's not a pride but i just feel like a warmth like oh yeah i love this i love 
life. I love music and you can feel it. And, and he could, he was just astonished that like, it was so uncool to do that, (laughs) but there was no wink wink in the music and the production. There was no sense of like, wouldn't it be funny if I did that? It was a sincere approach, you know? And I, I, I really appreciated that he even told me that because I, I like like you asked i mean no one's ever no one's ever really liked that shit my fucking favorite neil young record is probably the first one that he hates the one that has a lot of cheesy touches to it i think it's much more interesting than a lot of his other stuff but that's just that's just me i want to see where music production can go and like court and spark i think bread touched upon paradigms that have not been improved upon and maybe need to be revisited in some ways because I mean a lot of people don't know David Gates produced the first Captain Beefheart 7 inch I mean the dude is a genius like his production is so so clever just I realize that it's very unmanly music (laughs) and it's very it's kind of like what you would imagine your grandpa listening to if he was a trucker or something but that to me is lost american heritage you know that to me is fascinating that's a dead language that i want to preserve you know and when you think back to all the times you've listened to bread is there like a particular listening memory for you that comes to mind as like when you listen to this record that's that's where your mind goes back to yeah i mean the only reason I even know who Brad is is because my Boston guru, who was this hardcore kid, gave me the tape, you know, and we were probably on acid and he handed me this tape and he's like, oh, you don't know this? You don't know? He, he was like really into like America and all this like easy listening AM music. And I just, I found that perplexing. So in the spirit of wanting to be like the cooler older kid i wanted to know where he was coming from but the difference was was that like when he went home he smoked crack and shot up heroin and when i went home i worked until i went to bed on my four track and i wanted to see what i could do i wanted to i I, you know i was just i had a feeling that i could do something special if i tried hard enough so when i heard um you know like america they're they're mostly known for like that kind of shitty song the in the desert with a horse with no name i i don't even really like that song that much um but america was known as like sort of they came after the beatles and george martin produced them and so they were sort of like they were gonna be big like there was nothing that could really stop them but their easy listening technique is kind of like it's the perfected form you know it's neil young's mom called him and congratulated him on another number one because they had perfected copying him so well (laughs) she thought that neil young wrote a horse with no name but so they basically that kind of form bread in america i mean that that format of like being able to use an acoustic guitar but play a pop song so chiseled down with no fat and have your mom your grandma and your kid all like it equally 
there's something really beautiful about that, but the clincher is that it sounds super fucking stoned. <laughs> like like the like modern whatever sludge core bands that like sleep and shit don't sound a fraction as stoned as that shit to me. <laughs> you know? And like that's the thing is like that's one of Al's things too is like, you know, we both were scarred from our drug use and all of our experiences and like he's got a whole language that's perfected about like if he sees something that's perfectly stoned he'll say like you know that shit's fucking headband or that shit's fucking wheelchair or that shit's fucking you know <laughs> denim jacket or whatever you know that's that shit was back patch you know or whatever all that <laughs> stuff is code for like some vietnam vet you know that just so busted but he's seen the truth and he's super fucking high and that's the music of that time and that's what people forget is like more motherfuckers have OD'd and died to bread in America than any fucking Sex Pistols record. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, that's drug music for the people, motherfuckers. It's like, those are two <laughs> different things, you know? And once I posited that, once I digested that, that real drug music is the music that drug addicts actually listen to... <laughs> That's when I started wanting to make music in in that in the seventies mode that was like a pure exploration of fucking Fred Neal on my goddamn dad's boat riding the dolphins. I was like, it all made sense to me in one moment. It's like, oh, like the pure spirit of folk rock. What gets more fucking like effortless than that it just rolls right out of your hand off the acoustic guitar i can travel anywhere with a fucking acoustic guitar on a plane put me in a room it doesn't matter if it's you know some massive hall like dylan did and don't look back but it's like it'll still translate because that music is so simple and so pure and so timeless what gets better than that there's nothing that is the music of our fucking time you know that's that's we don't play for the king with a fucking lute anymore and we don't do <laughs> full blustery symphonies anymore and fuck all that fucking you know taylor swift shit for little girls in in like tights in a fucking stadium what the music of our time was was this shit that people lived and died by you know that rednecks fucking od'd to in a fucking parking lot do you th still think it's the music of our time now then well i'm still playing it so, <laughs> yeah nice. and do you have a favorite track on the best of bread um i come one of the first covers i ever did was is called the last time but that's written by james griffin who died in, like the year after i covered it that was kind of intense um but the I don't know. I mean, honestly, Baby, I'm Gonna Want You is the song that converted me. Once I heard it flow out of my friends, like, truck speakers in college or driving down the Blue, the Blue Ridge Parkway, like, in the mountains of Asheville, North Carolina, and you you hear each line, like, Baby, I'm Gonna Want You, and the bass guitar answers with no drums. Da -dum -dum. Hmm. 
baby, I'm gonna need you to doom doom. It's it's fucking gangster. Like that's the kind of <laughs> shit Dr. Dre listens to, man. Like I don't need to ask him. I know. Like that that's like that's the kind of shit that kids grew up listening to back then that made them want to actually make speakers like push in their car and like that's that's the true original American gangster music is like comes from that time. And so I think Baby Baby I'm Gonna Want You is like a perfect entry point. Baby I'm gonna want you. Baby I'm gonna need you. You're the only one I care enough to hurt about. Maybe I'm a crazy, but I just can't live without your loving and affection. So, let's go to your last record now. Uh, if you could tell me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Well, I didn't know what to pick. I thought, um, my brain always tells me to talk about, like, the Sebado, the Freed Man record because for whatever reason that record, um... It epitomized the coloration of like what I wanted to make, like even the way the cover is black and green, and they're standing in a gutter with like vines all around them, and like maybe like a broken uh, shopping cart in the background, and they're just calmly waving at the camera. I mean, that record sounded like what my life felt like, you know. So my normal reaction is always to talk about that record, but I've spent so much of my life talking about Sebado on air and in the press <laughs> that it just seemed almost ridiculous to do it again. So I, um, from time to time, revisit the 90s musically, not that often, because I think that Technologically and technique-wise, it was a pretty uninteresting decade in a lot of ways. It just, I don't know. The way people touched their instruments sounds like shit to me. I, I just don't. People just, they bang on everything in that decade, <laughs> and it just sounds really bad. And uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the recording techniques are not that interesting. I mean, do you really want to listen to Nirvana Nevermind? all the time i mean it just seems kind of like there's something not very psychedelic about it so i find myself reaching for raw things it might even be you know like early aerial pink or something it just doesn't it's not it's not cleaned up yet so it feels it feels nice if you're a little bit high or something you know wandering around the house you know cleaning or whatever um it speaks to me it makes me feel like oh this is someone like me you know like early smog or something it's just it's kind of wrong it doesn't sound good necessarily it sounds like what my life is like so mm. i was trying to think of things like that and sometimes i revisit those periods and i don't know why i bought i like rebought some pavement stuff i can't remember what it is that got me on that but for the podcast i have to 
re-examine things. So I went through a big guided by voices phase when I got here into the trailer and I started re-listening to that and trying to think about what it was, what Robert Pollard's, you know, true talent was. Cause I wanted to explain that to kids that have largely ignored him or not known about him. That was difficult. Uh, but <laughs> pavement have their own, uh, sort of place in the, the Parthenon and they, they're talked about a lot more. So I don't feel like I have to really cover them that much, but in listening to watery domestic, which was my choice, um, I just, you know, I really forgot how much Gary Young, the drummer, he's like a really, really major influence on me. And I mean that in some sort of like life musician way or something, the way he plays drums is, it's crazy, man. It's like, it's very Ringo-esque, but I mean that in the sense that, like, he's a giant. You know, sure. he's he's one of the greatest drummers, uh, I mean, in the past, whatever, 40 years or something. And and I'm, I'm not saying that lightly on purpose. I mean, between him, Eric Gaffney from 70, and uh, uh, Charles Gaucher from Sun City Girls... Those three people's attitudes, like that, changed my the way I saw drumming because I didn't I didn't care about drumming I didn't I didn't really want to play drums past 1993 or two or something and then when I got to Portland almost ten years later, um, this this guy Alex asked me if I wanted to play some shows and we formed Grails. Um, completely accidentally it wasn't we weren't trying really to do anything and it was on that day that i had to reconsider why would i play drums why what would i be wanting to say what could i do that would be even mildly interesting uh for anybody else to watch or listen to and i just look back at at the genesis of like how i understood drugs and music and like how I want drums to sound and feel and I mean Gary Young is just he's a titan he's like he makes everything feel so good and as a music producer I would say he's I don't want to give him too much credit but he's definitely why those early pavement records feel so good and are so groundbreaking is he is the scaffolding that everything Malcolmus is doing on top of him. It's built on that scaffolding. And, and as somebody who has to record drums first all the time for my own songs, I mean, the drum take is the song essentially. And, and that whole saying of like a band's only as good as his drummer is impossibly true. It's just so, so insanely true Especially when you're talking about a classic track that's got to live forever, like Tomorrow Never Knows or something that Ringo played on. I mean, hmm. those drum beats have to stand the test of, of time forever, you know? Hmm. And Gary's playing just breathes and th- just the every little swinging fill is insane. I mean, play just the opening of 
when he comes in with the summer's dry and fallow, reservoirs are shallow, stillways unexposed. You know what I mean? Like, it's like fucking insane the way he's just casually waltzing in the room with that drum fill. I mean, to me, that drum fill smokes Keith Moon. Like, it's like, it's <laughs> swinging so hard. I mean, and Keith Moon's awesome, but I don't ever feel like he understands the pocket like that, you know? That's that's your that's your cue for dropping that track. <laughs> you got it. And so, yeah, you went for Watery Domestic, which is like an 11-minute EP. Um, is there a reason that this rose to the surface here in this case uh, beyond their other releases that you could have gone for here? Well, I mean, I don't want to be like a militant asshole, but um, I think most super pavement fans, super early pavement fans all agree in the in the cabal of early pavement judgment that watery domestic was the high point it was like because like even crooked rain is an incredible pop record in the in the mold of something like a bread record it's 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 perfectly put together it's amazing the way it sounds and feels is so swinging and like but the drumming changes after gary and and if you really want to get into the archaeology of of pavement profundity i mean watery domestic is just this forever shining moment of what you know indie rock wasn't really a word and it doesn't need to exist but watery domestic kind of just says good night to the underground era it's like it's it's a perfect expression of an underground band being themselves and not knowing where this is all going you know and the way the guitars buzz and and their kind of muted detuned nature and the way the the songs just kind of like woozily flow through and every lyric is literally just like shooting off of his hip you know like Hmm. he's just casually rapping like he just woke up and is walking down the street it's pre-industry music in a way it's just happening and like i don't experience music like that anymore you know someone does who's young and puts the faith that i put into bands like that they put that faith into like a newer band but i just hear someone aping a carbon copy of a carbon copy of a carbon copy i don't hear somebody just flowing and being themselves as much anymore so when i hear watery domestic i think it's a perfect again you know as as the artist has an arc there's like crosshairs where you can kind of throw what you think is their peak expression and certainly a lot of people i think crooked rain is a great choice i think slant and chan is a great choice and you know westing is is good too but watery domestic just it just shines and glows with a true stoner 
like it, it's just a perfect like mirage in the distance it's like barely even i can't believe it exists it's so pretty to me and i don't know i think uh i think the pixies set it up for sure and they were like their melodies were so unforgettable but they never ever sounded high they never sounded stone and they never really sounded street and Malcolmus understood Lou Reed enough to bring it back to where the velvets, how they flowed and how street life really was. And it just like the study of that feeling and the celebration of reality, it just feels so much better than the kind of like hyper compressed claustrophobic pixies bullshit, you know, where does the duration fit in to it for you? Cause it's like 11 minutes long, the whole thing. And obviously it's a record that's had a real profound effect on you. Is there anything about it being the duration that it is? I mean, it's such a fleeting moment. And for something to be so important to you to be here and gone in the space of 11 minutes is it's quite intense. So does that play into your relationship with this record in any way? I think it's indicative of Malcolmus being high and just saying I had some more songs <laughs> <laughs> like I think that's fucking beautiful like he's just like I didn't think about what we were working on and he grabs whatever it is Atomic Rooster or what I can't remember who what the record cover is it's like he grabs some 70s prog record and just scribbled on it like that's it he turned it into the label and it's real and it's still real <laughs> like you can still buy the shit and put it on and be like my god that feels good <laughs> like to, to help the listener out who doesn't like bread, Joni Mitchell, or Pavement, that's fine. But um, <laughs> one time, Duncan came over, and we took acid at my mom's house in probably 97 or something, and maybe 96, and we were just we didn't know what to do and we were we had started tripping we couldn't really we didn't feel like we could get into anything very ambitious and he like saw my record player and he's like oh music like play me music and i realized <laughs> holy shit like duncan's never heard underground music like like you know he's heard the ramones or something but it's major label music it's like this is like this crazy chance to play him underground music and for some reason i was so excited all of a sudden i grabbed like fugazi steady diet or or maybe repeater which is like hilarious i know it sounds like kind of stupid <laughs> thing to put on the headphones but i just i was just so excited i was thinking oh my god he's never heard anything like i can play him anything <laughs> And, you know, I guess maybe I thought maybe, like, I don't know, Joe number one or so, blah, doom, 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 ticka, ticka, goom, or some, like, some, some really smooth, pretty, you don't think of Fugazi as pretty, you know, but, like, yeah. would kick in some song and he'd just be like, what the fuck is this? And he just looked at me, had the headphones on, he looked at me, he's like, I don't like this. <laughs> just <said that. laughs> he just took the headphones off, you know, which is like, I was like, oh, yeah, Fugazi is 
probably never done LSD. Why am I play, <laughs> playing him Fugazi? That makes no sense. Um, and so I like just, I was in a desperate moment and I like grabbed, I think it was like the cut your hair seven inch, which is weird that I would even have the, the single, but I just, that's how I just loved the band. So I would buy anything at that, at that time. And so I just, it was like my old seven inches I had left at my mom's and I just grabbed cut your hair and I just put it on desperately. Cause I was like, shit. I mean, I got to save this moment for, <laughs> for Duncan. And, uh, it kicked in and he, and he just like started nodding and he looked at me. He's like, yeah, I like this. I like this. Cause dude, don't under, underestimate this stuff. Like, go put on a pavement record from that era, and it swings, and it's fuzzy, and it's big, and it's really warm, and it's just, like, purples and deep magentas, and, like, and he comes in, and he's not trying to tell you anything or prove anything. He's just be, he's just rolling over the music, and the music always has this big round edge, and it's just massaging you. And the weird thing is, I don't even think he knew that that's what he was doing. He was just being himself, just like I was talking about. Oh, it's just like we're just we just went out there and we just we don't even know what happened. You know, he he just was himself, and it rubs against your fucking ears on the headphones, and you're like, damn. Like, I feel like you know, I just had a chamay and some like. I'm on a beach in Lisbon <laughs> and like I just went swimming in salt water and like my head is just high from all these the sun is beating down on me in the perfect way. That's what pavement sounded like back then. You know, it just felt so fucking good. And I mean, why don't my advice to people making a record is that why don't you try to make people feel like that? Like what what happened? Why? <laughs> What happened to music that nobody wants anyone to feel really fucking good like they're on heroin? Like, that, I mean, if I listen to avant garde music concrete record from 1934, I want the same fucking thing. I don't want to hear just like the sound of some dog barking spliced against glass breaking. I want to hear some like heavy zoned out, like weird tomfoolery that makes me feel like I'm on Mars or something, you know? Yeah. Like, it just seems like people have lost the connection with like what was inherent in the seventies with the Eagles, Floyd, Bread. You go to Cal Jam, you see Sabbath next to fucking Seals and Crofts, and the, there's a common thread there because they're all on the same fucking drugs, man. <laughs> it's like people have lost <laughs> this appreciation for that kind of dopamine hit from that comes from like really beautiful production, you know. Are there any new bands that fall within that category of being relentlessly themselves? I mean, the movement that I still follow just from natural curiosity is like the new abstract, like electronic kind of music concrete sort of terrorist stuff, like the stuff I buy is sort of sounds like the kids that grew up listening to Pansonic and stuff. And I mean, the, I, I, I'm hesitant to name any names because I just have whole uh, sections of my record collection are just just a part of that. They're, they're just that movement, you know, and I don't like a lot of times I buy 
records from that movement. Um, I guess you'd say it's like a, it's like post want to tricks point never music or something like kids that, that are trying to take that into an even more weird, not vaporwave, but like, you know, like this kind of abstract free music, like horizon kids that are taking it there. I almost, I never like research what their names are or what country they're from. I just have like a massive collection of it and I just put it on when I'm drinking at night. And it's like kind of my favorite shit. It's just constantly moving, never repeating. Uh, it's basically what I talk over on the, on the podcast, you know, it's like all that, that incidental music is like a lot of that genre. But if, you know, a pretty good record, just off the top of my head um, that comes to mind is this collaboration with that dude, Paul. I think he lives in Berlin. He played a show with us in Ohm. It's like the dude from Paul and the dudes from Roll the Dice. Does that sound familiar? Roll the Dice, yeah. I've had Roll the Dice. Yeah, it's like this nice collaboration, and it's just super minimal electronic it's not ambient. It's like, it's like kind of mood. It's almost like some sort of hash bar music. It's just really, uh, it's just like a, a hi hat clicking on delay and just like rattling, you know, sounds around it. It's, it's a really nice, it's, it's a way for me to answer your question. Say like, there's still music being made that wants to explore something that's equal parts satisfying to listen to. It's like feels really good. If you're taking like, if you needed to come down from ecstasy or something, it's going to massage you, but it's also totally playful and terrorist in that it's not, it's not really wanting you to like it too much. It wants to be itself. It wants to see where it wants to go. So I think there's tons of music like that, but in my experience, it's usually in the freeform electronic realm, if that makes sense. I don't see it in rock music that much because, like, I just, it's hard for me to, like, want to go listen to a band that just wants to sound like, you know, Jesus Lizard, as though, like, you can recreate that kind of, like, dangerous feeling as though, like, that's going to make me feel dangerous again. Cause that my brain won't let me do that. Cause I know what you're doing. And I know <laughs> what you're, you know, it's like, you got to take me to a lawless place where I don't know where I'm going. And that's why I have to revisit things like the playing of someone like Eric Gaffney was, was really huge for me because I never, no one knew where he was going. It was a true, like Sid Barrett, um, kind of Skip Spence moment in the early 90s where you're like, this guy, this guy is literally speaking another language. And that was so exciting. And once you, once you get addicted to somebody doing that to you, you don't want to go backwards. You don't want to go back to the known. You want to keep going into the unknown. You know, it's just, it's just a true lifer head perspective. You don't, you don't want to like know what you already know. You know what I mean? Well, Emo, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk through these important records. It's been great. If people want to uh, keep up to speed with what you're doing, uh, is there a best place for them to, to head online to do that? I think just all the Drifter Sympathy stuff gets announced 
on my Facebook and on my Twitter, on my Instagram. It's it's those are the three places I post everything. And our tour is about to start over in. I, mean, I got to fly to Prague pretty soon, but uh, I'll announce all that stuff on there if you if you just friend me or something. Wicked. Awesome. Well, thanks, Emil, and to everyone listening, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.